Hey, everybody. What is up? This is Gabriel Cardona. Welcome to the Subnet Podcast. I'm joined today by the amazing Connor Daly. What's up, Connor? Hey, Gabriel. How, how's it going? I'm so excited to be here. Thank you very much. Connor is one of the amazing engineers from Model Labs. His uh, first claim to fame that I know of is he's the creator of Pangolin, which is probably the largest autom- automated market maker on the Avalanche network. But he's got other claims to fame because he and I have recently been working on a very exciting project. And then there's just so much other stuff going on. So I wanted to bring him on and just talk to him about his uh, past, his crypto history, his crypto vision, and then just get, you know, hit him with some other crypto questions. So welcome, Connor. Uh, we were chatting before this and we were talking about uh, basically how he got to all the labs and how he ended up at Cornell and connected with guns. So let's start back there again. Um, how did you end up at Cornell? Yeah, so I, uh, my dad was in the Navy for for a number of years, and then kind of got out of the get out get out of the service, and then ended up working for the Army as a civilian employee. And so I had moved around a lot uh, my whole life, and uh, I lived in I was from New Orleans originally, but I moved around a few different places, and uh, ended up going to high school in Heidelberg, Germany. And you know, when I was in high school, I was really uh, kind of learned that I was really into like math and science and was kind of going down the technology track. I actually, I started programming in eighth grade. My, my first programming experience was actually an action script building, building flash games, which was uh, really cool. I made one called the, the adventures of Galgatron. And so my, the first stuff I was doing was, you know, somebody please make game. an NFT called the adventures of Galgatron, please. <laughs> so I need to see a pixel art NFT of this like ASAP. Be careful though. I, I might. I need royalties if, uh, <laughs> if you do that. It's true. It's true. I still have it on like a USB drive somewhere. But yeah, basically, it was like this alien Galgatron was captured by humans and being experimented on, and so they were making him do tests. And so the first, the first game we made was like a rock paper scissors. It was just like a random thing, but mm-hmm. basically, you know, it's like on click event for the rock object. We select the rock. Uh, thing we feed it in we get a random number output we see if it's we do the rock paper scissors and then you have to win like three out of five or something like that so i just got to crack that action script random number generator and i can own that exactly then you can win every time there's no oracles yet for random number generators for rock paper scissors you know surprisingly this was macromedia flash back then it wasn't even adobe flash and so i think uh the, the corporate overlords at Adobe have just gotten, uh, they, they left Flash by the wayside. They did. We were talking about that previously. We blamed it on Steve Jobs and the iPhone. <laughs> yeah, no, really. I mean, I think Flash games used to be so huge and I, you know, I loved them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so we did, we did uh, Rock, Paper, Scissors, then I did a Brick Breaker one, which was like really hard for, for an eighth grader because I didn't know trigonometry. And if you want to make the pad like there's a thing in like a good implementation of brick breaker where if you hit the ball off different parts of the paddle it'll go in different directions instead of just uh instead of just inverting the like x and y axis like if you hit it off the end of the paddle it'll bounce a different direction you had to know trigonometry like you have to use trigonometry to figure out exactly like the angles at which to to send it off but i didn't know trig because i hadn't even had like i was in algebra one (laughs) (laughs) my teacher for that semester also like had to leave he one of the other teachers quit and he got pulled over from tech to math mm. and so i like basically had to teach myself out of a book that whole class but we, we did make it work it was nice. pretty cool yeah breakout is like famously the very first game that jobs and wozniak did for atari right they 
they like yeah. that was their very first project and if they got it done in a short amount of time they got extra money and that was the money that jobs went to india with and later somebody interviewed wozniak and they were like hey i heard you guys got five thousand bucks for that game at atari and he was like what steve paid me 500 bucks <laughs> Yeah, no. So that was that was my first programming experience. Then kind of in high school, uh, I was able to start reading some like, you know, expand my interest, doing well in all my classes, taking AP classes. But I read some books on theoretical physics, which just like blew my mind, like uh, Brian Greene, Fabric of the Cosmos. That was just like total mind explosion. And then sure. There were a couple Nova documentaries about that that I watched that were also just like total mind blowing. I'm like, this is like, this is not what they teach us in school. This is so cool. Like you tell mm -hmm. me that there's like, there's multiverses, there's the string theory thing, there's quantum mechanics, like there's wave particle duality. There's like all this, the double slit experiment. Like if you, if you look at the experiment, you get different results. than if you don't look at the experiment, it's just totally, you know, 15 year old me, just like mind blown, like all, all the time. And I'm like, this is, this has to be what I do for a living. Mm -hmm. So I was very much on like the academic track of like, all right, I'm going to go to college. I'm going to go to grad school and I'm going to get my PhD and then I'm going to go be a professor and I'm going to be a professor of physics. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that was, that was the path. And so I was kind of like looking, trying to get to the, go to the best college that I could go to. Um, now I was on a military base at the time. So we didn't really have like a, a geographic hub where like everybody went to school too because everybody was just from like uh different places so everybody kind of went to just wherever they were from originally it wasn't like you know if you're at a louisiana high school like you know 70 you know, of the kids that go to college probably like 80 percent of them go to lsu sure um so uh yeah i was just trying to go to the best school i could go to and you know i was lucky enough that i was able to get into cornell and uh you know didn't didn't quite make it to Harvard. Only only got on the wait list. But I uh, <laughs> yeah, I was really I was really proud of that at the time. That was something I worked really hard for. Sure. Um, so you started out with physics then, not computer science. Yep. So I started out in physics, and I was I was like I said, I was on the academic path. So I actually did two years of research in in physics, and I worked in um, I started out in an accelerator physics lab, and I met a guy who uh, I really liked. But, probably one, you know, one of one of my favorite people I've ever worked with who was a you know, really great mentor to me and he took me into his lab and so I was doing work on so it's, you know, accelerator physics is when uh, it's actually like building particle accelerators themselves not um, not analyzing the results so like trying to build things like the large hadron collider and mm -hmm. the individual components and so uh, these things are like, they operate at like superconducting temperature. And so I was looking at like how to improve the efficiency of the materials. And like, if there actually was a difference in efficiency, if you, uh, cooled them down quickly or slowly to, to the superconducting temperature. Wow. And so we were looking at like these thermoelectric currents at titanium niobium junctions at like four Kelvin with superfluid helium and, and all kinds of cool stuff. Hmm. And so that was actually doing hardware stuff, like real experiments. Uh, that was, you know, a really great experience. I actually got a physics publication out of it, uh, which is pretty cool. Mm -hmm. And uh, I how really, I really enjoyed that experience. How big was the team? Uh, the whole department was like very small. Uh, accelerator physics is a very underpopulated field. Sure. Uh, everybody who likes this kind of thing goes into the particle physics side, which is like analyzing the experimental results. 
that is a way too overcrowded field. If you go into there, like you will not get a job <laughs> because like there are just not enough positions. But if you go into accelerator physics, you are like guaranteed to get a job at one of like five universities because there are just no graduates. Mm. Uh, you know, <laughs> and so um, the the T the T the there was probably like five faculty members working in this field, and then a bunch of support staff. Okay. Um, but like only one of these two, like only a couple of the people actually taught. Most of them were just actually like visiting researchers. Got it. Um, and this was hardware though. This was no software at all. Were you writing any code at all? Uh, there was a little bit of analysis code. The first, the first experiment I actually tried was a data analysis thing, trying to do like Fourier transforms, trying to look for signals in a pattern that didn't go anywhere. Uh, the next project, yeah, was actually like very physical, but we had, they're called like cryo modules. We had like things that we were submerging and dropping down to, to four Kelvin and, and stuff like that. It was very, very little programming. It seems like we're, like we were saying earlier, hardware is hard. It just seems like there would be so many different moving pieces and so many interface points between the project like that, that it seems like there would be a lot of places things could go wrong or you could get misreadings or bad data or something. That seems like a lot of moving pieces to me. Yeah, what was really hard was actually capturing the data because the actual experimental apparatus with our like sensors and stuff is like inside the container that's operating at like four Kelvin. Mm -hmm. like, so actually like the, the hardest part was the interface be between the doer to get like to the normal temperature to the sub-zero to, to, the, to the super cold temperature. And we had to have these junctions and they were, it's called a feed through and it used to break all the time. And there were these little, little tiny cables that had to be soldered into these pins. Mm. And they were just so fragile because they kept getting shocked by being dropped down to four Kelvin back mm -hmm. up to room temperature, four Kelvin room temperature. And that just puts a lot of stress on the material. And these are like tiny little wires. Mm -hmm. And they used to like, just like tear all the time. And I had to re-solder them so many times. And I was like, they were really difficult solders because they were just like really small. And I was not very good at it. <laughs> that was the hardest part. How often does stuff get shut down because you don't have the gear to fix it? Like how often do you run out of the soldering wire or whatever, where, you know, whatever the random thing is, where it's like, we're shutting down today. We don't have any more tape or something like that. Is it common or do you just have a huge, huge university budget and you've got stocks and stocks and stocks of everything you need? We, we, as an undergrad, I would say we had stocks and stocks of everything, but I like didn't, <laughs> I was not like the most using like super everything. Like I was not sure. like, the, the most uh, useful employee or whatever. I had like my small subset stuff that I worked on, but I can't say about everything super generally. Got it. So how did you start sort of transitioning from there to ultimately doing computer science? Yeah, so I worked in a different lab uh, the next year and I was working on the data acquisition system. This was actually a particle physics lab. So analyzing the results of a experiment. It was an experiment called the muon G minus two, which was looking to disprove the current standard model of physics and show that it was show that it had shortcomings and that there were more physics to be discovered. Hmm. Um, and so this was a collaboration with like tens of universities and we were working on a very small piece of it. And so I was working on this data acquisition system. So we were trying to like create, 
do computer simulations because we didn't have the data collection. So we were trying to do like computer data simulations to like show that like we could trigger and capture the data like we expected because whenever you do a particle physics experiment, there's like millions of events per second. Sure. So you have to be very quick about like, and very uh, precise about how you read data. You can't just capture it like all the time or whatever. It's like too fine grained. Mm -hmm. And so I basically, I spent the summer working on like, it was mostly like kind of Linuxy stuff, sure. trying to do like some certain like hardware modules for some custom ports and, and things like that. And I really liked it actually. And I realized at the end of the summer that I hadn't done any physics Mm -hmm. And I didn't really care. <laughs> the parts nice. of my job that I really liked were the computer science parts. And there was, there was also a postdoc in the lab who uh, had just gotten his particle physics degree, which was like what I was thinking about doing. Mm -hmm. And he went to go work for Seagate to do software stuff for them. Sure. So I kind of like had this realization that, wow, there's no jobs in this field. If I go through and get my PhD, I'm going to just end up working for Facebook or like doing software. But I'm not going to really have my choice of software jobs. I'm going to get to do the software jobs that physics people are good at doing. Right. But if I get a CS degree, I could do whatever software job I want. Because if I'm going to end up there regardless, might as well like carve my own path rather than having to backdoor my way in. Sure. And so I was very much on the academic path still. Uh, and I was like, you know, I'd like, I'm a person who like does research every semester. So let me see if I can find a new research project. And so I was really interested in cybersecurity. Uh, and so, cause you know, ha hacking is cool. So definitely. <laughs> and I was like, how, how can I learn to do hacking? And like, they don't actually teach you very much at, at, at Cornell about that. But I was looking at different research, um, different research opportunities, different professors. And I landed on uh, one professor, MN Goon Seer and that was my, he was my, my number one choice to, to work with. He had done some cool work on, on operating systems that I thought was really interesting. I was interested in cybersecurity and I was interested in traditional systems. Uh, so, you know, operating systems, compilers, uh, all the stuff that makes our, our infrastructure run. And did somebody connect you guys or did you just like rush them? No, I just walked in cold. Uh, uh, you know, I, I didn't send him an email. I just kind of dropped by his office one day. He had his door open. I walked in and I said, hi. And he's like, hello. And I, <laughs> <laughs> and I said, do you, have, do you have a minute? And he's like, I might. <laughs> and uh, that's some good, good, said, that's some good, good mannerisms <laughs> out there. That was good. That's convincing. <laughs> And I was like, so I, hey, I'm, I'm an undergrad. I'm, I'm looking for a, I, I used to be a physics major, but I, I switched over to, switching over to computer science. I'm, I'm looking for a research project to join. Do you, have, do you have any spaces or would you be interested in working with me? To which he said, uh, have you taken my class? To which I said, no. And then he just promptly said, sorry, come back, come back after you've taken my class. Goodbye. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, you know what? He actually, he did have it on his website. Like there was a section on his website. If you want to work with me, you have to have taken my class and you had to make an A, then come talk to me. Uh, but I was just like, you know, I'll try my luck. So I started to walk out the door and he was just like, hmm, hold on a second. Why, why did you come here? And so uh, 
I'm a, if any if any of our listeners are, are still in college, I'm going to provide you a little alpha leak here. This is a, a tip that I did not think about at the time, but in hindsight, I think this is actually a really good idea. And I would highly recommend this to anybody who is trying to get a research position in college or just you want to work with somebody. Um, read their paper. Like that's like honestly the, the best thing you can do. Like figure out what they're actually working on. Find the most recent thing that they've done because they're still working on that. <laughs> and or just something that's like relatively recent that you find is think is really interesting. And so that's what I did. So I read his paper and I picked out a specific diagram in the paper to like prove that I had actually read it and not like just read the title or the abstract. Like I had a specific question about like a specific picture. And I, you know, it was the Nexus operating system. And I just said, you know, I was just reading your paper and I was like looking for, for, you know, research project. And I just thought it was so cool how you could use these operating system primitives to show that this picture was Photoshopped and there weren't actually missiles in it. And it was just tanks driving normally without the missiles being shot. Um, and I just, I think stuff like that is so cool. And then he was just like, oh, you know, maybe, maybe I have a project for you. <laughs> nice. Well, that was a pretty auspicious meeting, man. What if his door wouldn't have been open? No, nice. yeah, seriously. This is, this is a butterfly effect. Uh, my, I would certainly probably wouldn't be working here. I might not even know what crypto is. Who knows? Sure. And then so what was his first project? What did he run ramp into? Yeah. So he is like, do you know what Bitcoin is? And I oh, wow. said no. Right out of the gate. Huh? <laughs> what year was this? This is 2014. Okay. So, wow. In 2014, he asked you, do you know what Bitcoin is? That's pretty cool. Yeah. So my, my first introduction into Bitcoin was building on Bitcoin. Wow. Like I, I, this, I did not come from an ideological standpoint at all. It was very much like, I've got a research project on Bitcoin. Can you like, uh, is this something you can handle? Like read the white paper and come back and talk to me like next week. Um, so I did. And, uh, the project we worked on together was something called Virtual Notary. Before so, we even get there, before we get there, let's dig into the white paper a little bit. Yeah, that's such, yeah. Such a big document. What did you think? Did you get it? Was it over your head? I suspect not. You're a very smart dude. You know math as well. Uh, <laughs> I didn't understand the proof of work part. Yeah. <laughs> the math behind the proof of work uh, eluded me at the time. Sure. I haven't gone back and reread it. So maybe it still eludes me. Who knows? Did you appreciate <laughs> that it was a significant document when you read it? Or were you just kind of like, this is. Oh, yeah. I thought it was. I thought it was really interesting. Like the, the whole idea of having, being able to solve the currency problem without um, a, a trusted third party mm -hmm. uh, and just having this ledger. Like it made a lot of intuitive sense of like, oh yeah, if I just know that Gabriel transferred me money and I transferred you know, somebody else money, then I know that you, know, you don't have any more money to send to me. Like that part made like super clear sense. Sure. Um, and so I thought, I thought that was really cool. And I didn't necessarily have any super like ideological takes on the time of like, like government is screwed. <laughs> Did you, um, so I'm trying to think of the timeline. So 2014 would have been before the Ethereum white paper or yellow paper. So did, was, so the, so there had already been at least one Bitcoin spike by then. Was there buzz around probably not good because he's very technical but was there buzz around the price of the token or was that not something so it was around six hundred dollars when i started okay. uh started working Fair and enough. i was just like you know i started i started doing this work and i was like maybe i should buy some and then like a month or two later it crashed to like 200 and i was right. like oh my god thank god i didn't buy sure. <laughs> 
Yeah. Yeah. I have a good friend who uh, inherited a significant amount of money and invested it all into Bitcoin when Bitcoin was around $800. And then it crashed to 500 crashed and he sold it all in a panic. And so of course he lost like a third of his inheritance. And then today he hates life. Basically every time, I, every time I see him, he's like, let's just don't talk about it at all. Yeah. <laughs> Gabriel, as far as I'm concerned, you're an accountant. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So then what was your first project? If you were building on Bitcoin, what were you actually doing? So I was working on something called Virtual Notary, which was one of, if not the first attestation platforms on, on blockchain. Sure. So we were basically hacking the, uh, the Bitcoin blockchain to use it to store data so that we could do, so proof of attestation. So Virtual Notary, basically the idea was um, we can capture factoids from the internet that we, from our perspective, we see like uh, a tweet ownership of an email address, uh, a random number, um, website contents, something like that. And so our whole pitch was, let's say Gabriel gets on Twitter and says, Doss Connor sucks. He's the worst developer ever. And I am like, this is, this is slander. This is libel. I'm not the worst developer ever. So I take a screenshot of your tweet. You then delete the tweet. So now I'm suing you, we go to court. I present my screenshot of your tweet as evidence. And you say, I never tweeted that, you just Photoshopped it. That's a reasonable defense, right? You have, you know, without, without going, digging into like going to Twitter, getting them to dump their archives sure. and like tell us, I don't really have any counter argument against that because screenshots are not in any way secure. I very easily could have Photoshopped it. Mm-hmm. What virtual notary does, is it would take a screen, it would, it would download the tweet from Twitter and attest that from my perspective, I see this tweet, tweet on Twitter at this time and it would make a cryptographic certificate saying this. It would have, have the contents of the tweet in it. We would take the hash of that and it would publish that hash on the blockchain. Got it, okay. Was it and doing it also, in- yeah. No, I'm interested. Yeah, it would, yeah it would, and it would just also, it would also have like rolling hashes so that it, um, it would track like its whole, uh, whole contents of everything it verified. Well, do you remember like how you were doing it? Were you writing it to the Opera Turn? I think that's the yep. only place you can store Opera We were right? the first, pe- I think we were some of the first people using Opera Turn for this. That's amazing, man. Yeah, so that's, that was my question is if you were gonna do a hash. So we even have a simple timestamp VM now uh, as, as, as like our canonical kind of example VM that does exactly that, right? It's like a proof of attestation VM. You can basically, um, um, take like a hash of a document and write it to a block and it'll have a timestamp and it's like ordered as well. So yeah, that's pretty cool, man. That was super, super early. So that was like one of the first ideas. Was that your idea or was that Goon's idea? Whose idea was it? It was, it was Goon's idea. Uh, so I was, yeah, I did a lot of the implementation, like taking it into like adding the opera turn stuff, like actually interacting with the chain, writing raw transactions. Cause I mean, coming into it, I didn't know anything about crypto. I didn't know anything about Bitcoin. I mean, crypto mm-hmm. was Bitcoin at that time. There was like- sure. Litecoin, maybe even Doge was around, but like, <laughs> yeah, Namecoin, not, Namecoin was around. I think Namecoin was like the yeah, first Namecoin. DNS type thing. By the way, just a side question: Is it weird for you to call him Goon? Do you still think of him as Professor Surreal, or are you guys? No, I, I, everyone called him Goon back then too. So, okay. got it. <laughs> yeah. Cool. So then that was 2014. So walk me into the Ethereum experience, being where you were at. You were at like the center of the universe, really, at that time. How did that all? Yeah. <laughs> So this was, yeah, I, I had some cool experiences being around, yeah, at that time. Uh, I think, I'm not sure if he had 
really anybody else working on crypto projects as like an undergrad or anything, but uh, just so was it just anything... you and him or were you on a team with a couple other people? Was no, no, no it was just me and him. Wow, man, that's amazing. You got introduced by, to Bitcoin in 2014 by Gun to do the first attestation project. That is pretty rad. Yeah, no, I mean, I wasn't even working with like grad students really. I mean, there was a few other people in the lab, but they were working on more like regular systems projects. Like they were working on uh, some different database technologies and, and things like that. So like, I was really like the only person working on crypto that I know of. I could be wrong on that. Sorry if I, I'm, I'm forgetting somebody. <laughs> so if you even, before we even go to Ethereum then, um, were you, did you have thoughts on the scaling debate? Because surely the scaling debate was already starting to formulate at that time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there actually, yes. Yeah, so so yeah, there were grad students working on this because yes, we were working, our lab was also working on a Bitcoin simulator to look at the effects of what different block sizes had on like the network throughput and things mm -hmm. like that. Got it. And so I was very much on the side of like, we need to like, do the science and not just have ideological debates. Sure. And like, we have people like, cause that was, this was after selfish mining had come out. Mm -hmm. And like, uh, like the Bitcoin community, uh, the Bitcoin core had actually hired professional trolls to like go after Goon and discredit him. Sure. And I think that I just was very much on the side of there's like a lot of wacko ideologues out there who are just trying to push an agenda. Mm -hmm. and are like doing some really dirty stuff to do so. And I think sure. that's a really poor approach to system design and that, you know, big blocks, small blocks, the best way to find out is to like, see what happens and like, see like what will actually increase network throughput, what will actually help us build a scalable network. Right. So that, that was very much my thinking. You were time. a pragmatic scientist at the time. Yeah, I got yeah. you. Yeah, I felt the same way, right? I was in the community at the time as well. I wasn't at Cornell, but I was doing my thing. And I was also just like, you know, there's solutions to this. It's just the engineering. And so that's why I started to focus on Ethereum way early. I, the first time I read the yellow paper, I got it immediately because I was a fan of Vitalik who was already writing for Bitcoin Magazine and had already done some colored coins and some different type of token things on BTC. So I already knew who he was at a distance and I was a big fan. So I remember I remember the first time I saw the yellow paper and being like, wow, you know what I mean? It was, <laughs> it, it was a mind blower to me. So walk me into that as how did you experience that evolution from Bitcoin into Ethereum? So I think, I think my first knowledge of Ethereum actually came through like a Wired article that was like a preview of like Ethereum before it launched. And I was just like, okay, I don't quite understand it. Like, Were you not into tokens? Did you not dig tokens? Or were you just doing the, the payment stuff? Or did you like Bitcoin tokens? Like um, Omni and MasterCoin and all this different I stuff? I didn't know anything about them. Got it. I, I was pretty much in my own world. Like I didn't necessarily go down the huge rabbit hole of like being on all the forums and stuff. Right. So like I knew some of the other people there. We had some copycats that popped up after us for like some sure. of our stuff. But I like, I did not just dive deep into the community. I was very much like focused on my project. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I, I first learned about Ethereum, but like before it came out, there was like a Wired article talking about like, it's going to add all these like normal programming languages on top of a blockchain. So you're going to be able to have like run programs. And I'm like, this makes no sense. How do you run a programming language on a blockchain? This like, it does, doesn't make sense. Right. Um, and so then I remember I was having lunch with Goon and a few of the grad students at the time. And uh, I, yeah, I just remember being like, so I read this article about this Ethereum thing. Like, do you guys like know what it is? Or like, 
is this going to be like important or whatever? And they're like, eh, maybe like, I don't do it. <laughs> really? So they weren't immediately sold on it either. It wasn't an obvious. I mean, it wasn't like, oh, no, no, no. You like, you need to know what this is. Like, this is going to be a thing. Like, no, mm -hmm. it was very much like, you know, this, it's a thing that's coming. Like we're like, you know, we're keeping an eye on it, but like, no, not, not, not super like, oh my God. Like how have you haven't heard about it? Yeah, nothing, yeah. nothing like that. One vibe I remember being, so at the time I hung out a lot on IRC. I was a big fan of IRC when I was a kid. I grew up in, in high school. I spent a ton of time on IRC. So when I started programming, I remember thinking there must surely be IRC channels for programming, right? You know, like one of my, I was like going through <laughs> Google. Yeah, right. And so- Are free, there IRC I, channels for anything else? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I discovered Freenode, right? And Freenode, if, if there's an open source project, it's got a room on Freenode. And so I was hanging out in a room called Bitcoin Assets, who was actually created by Merce Popescu, who recently passed away. He is like a famous old OG Bitcoiner who drowned recently. Um, that was his chat room. So people think of him as a notorious troll, but I'm the kind of person who like, I will put aside a person. I don't care about identity. I care about merit. Right. And so I learned a lot from this guy. So independent, if he said some stuff that I don't agree with or would never say out of my own mouth, man, he was a good computer scientist. And he taught me all about the web of trust. And so for years, I've been waiting for that web of trust model to be applied to social media, because today civil attacks are very cheap. Social civil attacks are cheap because you can just spin up a bunch of Twitter accounts, AI generate some pictures, AI generate some chat bots, and you can drive the entire conversation. That would change if your identity had value through a social with like a web of trust thing, right? So like it wouldn't be as easy for me to just throw away my identity and create another one because all these people have given me some type of trust rating. But anyway, long story short, I was in Bitcoin assets at the time. I had Bitcoin and these guys were just such haters of Vitalik, man. They clowned on this dude all day long. Like, are you really going to give up Bitcoin to get Ethereum? Really? That's what you're going to do? So you're going to go give Vitalik. So keep in mind, he's asking you for Bitcoin, right? He'll give you some Ethereum, sure. They'll give you Ethereum at the crowd sale. What do they want for it? They want your Bitcoin. Are you really going to give your Bitcoin? You know, like they dogged it so hard for sure. So there was that was the vibe and sort of like down the Bitcoin rabbit hole was like, really, you're going to give this guy your Bitcoin for this other thing he's launching? I don't think a lot of people, you know, it's the social dialogue. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, so anyway, uh, back to your story. So the first time you heard about it, you said you were at a lunch. I'm sorry. What, what was it? Yeah, I read I read a Wired article. And then I just remember talking about it with Goon and a few grad students at, at lunch. Okay. Okay. But then, um, yeah, I was in a very like lucky position because Goon was very much, you know, the crypto professor at the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were able to get some good talks that came through. One, I remember I got to Peter Todd came in and gave a talk, which was it was actually a terrible talk now that now that I think about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's Supposedly he had like just been in the hospital the day before, but I was just like, I think that was one of the worst talks I've ever seen. I was just like, man, afterwards I was talking to you. I was like, I think I could have given a better talk than that. <laughs> boring or just boring or not informative or what? I don't, I don't I'm trying to remember. It was just like nonsensical of just like, hmm. like, is that guy like on drugs? I think like, <laughs> I think they said literally he was in the hospital yesterday and like, wasn't going to come, but then came anyway, but like should have still been in the hospital. Gotcha. Okay. Um, but yeah, there was just kind of like a tour of people coming through. So I got to, I got to meet some cool people. And uh, one of them was actually the week before Ethereum launched, Vitalik came by and nice. Goon was like, uh, you should like meet this guy. Like, uh, you know, tell him about your research. I'll set up a one. Like the one thing they, they would do is when a visiting researcher would, would come by, they'd like set up appointments and you could like talk to them with like a one-on-one. -on -one. So I had a one-on-one -on -one with Vitalik, mm -hmm. like the week, literally the week before Ethereum launched. 
And uh, I gave him a demo of my site and he gave me a demo of uh, smart contracts. And I think the one he, the demo he gave me was written in Serpent, which is a, a dead language. Right. Uh, the Ethere Ethereum, they originally bit off way more than they can chew. They were sure. like, we're, we're writing like three clients in three different languages. And we have like five smart contract languages. There's going to be a JavaScript one, like a Python equivalent one, mm -hmm. a C++ equivalent one, whatever. And we got one client and we got one, <laughs> sure. one smart contract. Like maybe, maybe they got two clients. I don't remember if the, I think they also might've gotten this plus plus one. So what was yeah, your, then, like, what was your, just your blink impression of Vitalik? Like your very first gut instinct. What did you think about him? Uh, you know, I, you know, he's, um, he's very smart. Uh, he's definitely like was showing me stuff that I didn't comprehend at the time. Sure. Uh, he's definitely like, especially at the time I, I haven't seen him in person. And since, since then, uh, like not, not the most like socially graceful person you, you'll, you'll ever meet, but you can mm -hmm. tell he's just like very smart. And he, I mean, his birthday is days away from mine, like same year and stuff. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I mean, I was like also just kind of blown away because I'm like, this guy is like exactly the same age as me and, sure. uh, you know, very sharp. Did he, he have a, like, go ahead. I was gonna say he gave a talk to the whole department on like Merkle trees or something. Gotcha. Yeah. And that talk also went over my head at the time. Did he have <laughs> like, a, did you perceive, did he have like an ego? Was it, were you, were you able to connect with him? Like, did you, were you guys like, did you get along with him or was it sort of, was it hard to get in there or how was that? How was the actual personal dynamic? Oh, we weren't, we weren't like buds or anything. I don't know. We sure. did. <laughs> I was very nervous meeting him too. Cause I mean, not that he, like he has way more reputation now than he did then. Like, I mean, I remember. But you knew like, who he oh, was then. So you knew who he was. It wasn't just. Yeah, like I knew who like, he was and what he was doing, okay. but like Ethereum was like, I mean, hell it sold for like do a dollar for like, years or but like you know it was not it was not an instant sensation they had a lot of troubles sure but um i don't know i <laughs> i was like yeah you know hey it's like nice to meet you but i don't know i don't i don't think we really like super connected but like i mean i think uh i i think he's a cool guy i'd, I'd love to meet him again got but, it yeah um, and now that you're doing now that you're like one of the best smart con contract programmers that i personally know <laughs> And uh, definitely, you don't know very many. I <laughs> know yeah, you're right. Uh, no, I'm wondering, like, what are your feelings on that? Like, how do you feel that played out? Do you wish you could play that out different? Do you appreciate that that's kind of the way life goes? Like, what are your thoughts on having met Vitalik a week before it? And you know, because you're so. <laughs> I wish good. I would have bought some ether, man. Well, I see. I don't even mean that. I mean, do you wish you would have joined him? Because you're good enough where you could have joined him. Like, I really hold you very high esteem with your your computer science skills. You're the legit. So, do you kind of be like, damn, I should have joined the Ethereum then, or do you just like, yeah, that's the way the ball, that's the way the game's played, that's the way it, that's the way it plays out. You know, I I've been thinking a lot about that of like what uh, the path my life has taken and like why it has gone the way it has, and so much of it is just because of like the systems around me and. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I was looking for my first job out of college, it was very much like, I don't think I was ready for a high risk, high reward kind of position that could disappear in a few months. Yeah, that's you actually know, a I, very insightful thing to be able to know about yourself, man. There it is. That's why you didn't do it. You just weren't there and you're, you weren't there. Personally, yeah, right? I mean, I like, I didn't have any money personally. I mean, my parents are like, definitely not the, you know, worst off people in the world. And they could have protected me if anything went like really wrong. Sure. But I never felt entitled to that. Sure. Like I never thought that like going home was an option. <laughs> if mm -hmm. I like 
And so I was looking for, I think, more security at the time. Sure. And so, but also just like, it didn't really occur to me to look for jobs outside the career fair, kind of. Sure. Because I guess Cornell is very much like a valley feeder school. Right. And almost everybody I know went, goes to either, you know, Facebook, Google, Apple, Microsoft, or Wall Street. Sure. Um, everyone goes to a big company. A few people went to like, some high profile startups or whatever or that are like just acquired startups by like Cisco or so like things that aren't really startups, but like are big enough to get uh, the pay to play to, to get into like Cornell career fair. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, and also just like crypto was not at a, like was very much not at a, at a point where I could point to a single company and think that they would be around in two years. Got it. See, I, I understand totally. Yeah, I, I was similar, right? I found out about Bitcoin in 2011, but I had a one-year-old son and I definitely was just not at the place. Like I pivoted to working at Trulia in 2012 and left the Bitcoin ecosystem simply because I had a kid and I had bills, right? So I totally understand like, it's just about being where you are in your life and things lining up properly, right? So I know so many people, everybody, everybody has the same crypto story. It's a universal story. Man, I should have bought more then. <laughs> It's one thing that's universal to everyone, right? Yeah, like yeah. Every, everybody knew about Bitcoin four years ago. Damn, I should have bought more, right? So it's like some people dwell on it so much that they end up hating crypto and hating every person who's been successful. Mm-hmm. Like when I was at Bitcoin, I worked very closely with Roger Veer. I was convinced that half of the people who hated him hated him simply because he followed his intuition and got into Bitcoin and they did not. And so yeah. instead of just saying there's, no, there's other opportunities, you know what? I miss Bitcoin and I missed Ethereum, but I'm not going to miss the next one. Right. That's the mindset you got to have. There's always a new opportunity, right? Like, come on, is this the end of all opportunities? No, there's more opportunity every single day. But some people are just not able to get over on that missed opportunity. Like, damn, dude, I could have been a billionaire. All I had to do was invest 15 grand and I could have been, I'll never be able to uninfatuate about that. Like it dug into me for a long time. And eventually I just had to say, it's okay. You've got to move on with your life. Right. So, yeah, I understand. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree. And one of my coworkers at my last job was very much the like, my neighbors, their son was like building a startup in their garage. You know who their son was? Sergey Brin. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. They were like, like, you know, just like, man, I mined Bitcoin for years and then just like wasn't worth anything. So I like just threw it away. Yeah, that's like, actually yeah, like, the that's the canonical example I've been giving, actually. That's so funny you say that because I, I only know the guys who's through social media. I don't think we ever met in person, but sort of like the, the example I've been giving is that guy, James Housley, the guy the guy from Great Britain who threw away the hard drive with the like 300 million bucks in Bitcoin. So, you know, he threw, so, so supposedly this dude mined like, I don't know, 4,000, 5,000 BC. I don't know even how much is worth that today, but like supposedly it's worth a quarter of a billion dollars today. And he threw away his hard drive and didn't back it up. It's an innocent enough mistake, man. I definitely have thrown away a hard drive with BTC on it for sure. It crashed and I didn't have backup. So it happens, you know, for sure. Um, and so now like he's gone to the city council multiple times. Like I remember one time he literally, it it showed his wife's belly, right? This is the shot picture of this shot, a belly of a pregnant woman is in the forefront and in the background, you see the trash heap, like, I guess the hospital's next to the dump or something. And so literally while the dude's at the hospital with his wife, he, he was like, literally like in the distance, it's still there. Right. And so what he's going, what he keeps doing is he's going to the city council and now he's got a new plan saying, Hey, I've got 
um, backers and we want to uh, do deep scanning of the ground and use AI. We know exactly, we figured out exactly within a, so many feet where it should be. And I'm thinking, why would they even cut you in on that? If the city's going to do that, they'll just do it themselves and not give you any money. And right? then he finds the hard drive and it's cracked. <laughs> or he doesn't have the password. You know, it's just one of yeah, those things. Yeah. It's like, anyway, so, okay. So you um, found out about Ethereum literally the week before. So then walk me forward. Like what happened in between Ethereum and how did you ultimately find your way to all the labs? Like what does that chapter look like? Yeah. So like I said, I was looking for a more stable job, but I was really interested in working in like cybersecurity. So that's where I was focused. I was really torn between like grad school and a job. And so I kind of found um, uh, a good medium where I went to work at the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Lab, which is like kind of a government contractor wing of Johns Hopkins University. And so we did a lot of uh, defense contracting, stuff like that. But I actually got to do like real cybersecurity work, working with the government on, on various, uh, various projects, mostly in the on-class world. Got it. Um, so this is, this is where I always... Have a have an ongoing joke with Connor that he is a part of the Men in Black, and that I always ask him not to flash my memory again. <laughs> so if you hear me say, "Please don't flash my memory again," Connor, if the podcast um, cuts right here, yeah, this, this is where the joke emerges from. So, so there you go. Got it. Yeah. So I did uh, defensive cybersecurity research. That was my my specialization. Mm. So I just have a bachelor's degree, or I had a bachelor's degree at the time, mm -hmm. and so this was kind of an opportunity where I could go like work on my master's part time and do like real research as an undergrad because I was kind of frustrated with the academic system of just like, I could do this research stuff. I don't need a PhD. It's like not that hard. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I can like, I just want to just do the work. I don't want to have to deal with the shittiness that is grad school where they just take advantage of you for six years while I watch my peers get filthy rich at Facebook. Right. Yeah. So then how did you ultimately start writing smart contracts? Because when you came to all the labs, the first time I ever met you, you were like the new head of our DAPS team or whatever. So you must yeah, have yeah, yeah. had some pretty good skills. So how did that play out? So <laughs> funny thing. So I joined, I joined this, this company in, in 2016, 7,000 person company. We have a skills tracker or we had a skills tracker where basically you could enter your skills. So if somebody's like, I need a machine learning person, you could search machine learning, list of people would pop up who had that skill. And then you could like email them say like, Hey, you want to join my project? So I listed, so I'm a new hire. I'm like, well, I got to write down my skills. What are my skills? Well, I know Bitcoin and I know blockchain. <laughs> I was the, I was the only person out of 7,000 people who listed that as a skill. Wow. So now this was like fall 2016. We're now starting to get into 2017. You know what happened in 2017? Oh, I was there, my friend. Crazy. I, I remember it well. Yeah. And so everyone at the lab is like, I got an idea for a Bitcoin project or a blockchain project. And so I need somebody who knows blockchains. They go on the skill tracker. Guess who they find? Mm. One result. <laughs> wow. So as a, as you know, an 18, uh, I wasn't 18, as a 22 year old, like, you know, first at, fresh out of college, um, you know, I was the subject matter expert at the lab for all <laughs> blockchain related tasks. Nice. And so the, you know, where I worked, we, we had a lot of ability to apply, apply for grants to do projects that mm -hmm. were self-funded basically. Mm -hmm. And uh, like mostly small things, things you could spend like a few days, a few weeks, a few months on. And so I did some innovation grants uh, for Bitcoin and some, some were like self-funded. Other ones were like the department coming to us and being like, hey, we've got this idea for a Bitcoin project or, or a blockchain project. You want to do it? 
And so the first thing that I did was I worked on it. Uh, I submitted a proposal with a guy. Uh, we were working on a DNS blockchain implementation. Mm-hmm. And so kind of similar to Namecoin, mm-hmm. not super similar to ENS because we were actually trying to replace DNS. ENS actually had not come out yet. There was like a paper about ENS or, or something like that, but it like, it was not, it was not done. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like what we did is we were doing what, what our innovation was is we wanted something that would work with like actual, actual DNS. So we basically made a server that would just register domains to like via your DAP, it would register domains and it would check like, is this domain registered in uh, the blockchain? If yes, return the, you know, the IP address or whatever that was, that was corresponding to it. Um, and if not, then like fall back to like google.com mm-hmm. um, or, or, or Google's DNS or whatever. So um, it actually was like, so we set up like a real DNS server that would like, re- you could register like a, re- a records to or whatever and would like spit you back like the regular queries. Um, and, but it actually would like pull from the blockchain. So we built this, you know, we was it Ethereum it, um, or, was, or this is different. You said it's like name. No, it was Ethereum. It was Ethereum. Okay. So that was my first time writing like Solidity smart contracts. Got it. Back in version like four. <laughs> wow. Um, and so, yeah, so that was my, so I've, I've built applications. I've built dApps on Bitcoin, Ethereum and Avalanche now. And so that was my, my first foray into Ethereum. Um, we kind of struggled from like the classic, uh enterprise blockchain thing of like you build your blockchain app and then this company's like well we don't really know what to do with this sure. <laughs> or like we can't like our problem is we couldn't figure out how to actually buy ETH. like we just like as an organization like we couldn't do it mm-hmm. <laughs> because we were like too close to the government and just like we had to like pay people to like do stuff for us and it was it was a mess then uh then like the homeland protection department they like really wanted to like crack down on Bitcoin and stop criminals. Sure. Um, so there were some other projects that they were kind of like looking into trying to bring the, bring the feds in that weren't really super successful. Um, but then we did some more stuff with Ethereum test nets. I also did a big Ethereum like supply chain project looking at how to manage supply chain, uh, how you can manage supply chain on the blockchain. Which is going to be huge, of course. Absolutely freaking huge with supply yeah. chain. Yeah. So then... I, if you ahead. ever needed, I developed a protocol how to do it. I think it works really well. Yeah, I do. I, I know somebody who was brainstorming on a... Uh, definitely launching on something on Avalanche. Um, so then how did you come to the notice of all the labs? Through Goon or what exactly? How'd that go down? Yeah. So, I mean, I've been keeping up with Goon's work. Uh, and I knew... I, I saw when he released the Avalanche white paper with with team rocket or whatever and i was like oh cool he has a new paper i should read this which i've never never for what it's worth like i've never really got to the heart of why that was released in a pseudonymous fashion even though there are people's real names on the white paper i've never understood the logic behind that i don't know if you have any insight there but i don't understand why team rocket was why wasn't it just like kevin goon and whoever what was the 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 story the story that i have been told is that they team rocket were the people who helped solve the correctness proof oh, okay so that uh the, the the research lab with like robert van renesi and like kevin goon and all ted and all these people they were working with the algorithm and simulation but they were trying to come up with a formal correctness proof to uh. prove that it has the properties that it has mm-hmm. and that team rocket was 
an anonymous party who reached out and helped them with the correctness proof. Okay, fair enough. Gotcha. Okay. Um, so yeah, so the paper came out. I didn't read it because you know, I was busy. I had a girlfriend. <laughs> you know, I had to play some video games. <laughs> um, fa fast forward two years. Right. And I'm like, you know, it's quarantine. Like I liked my job, but I kind of reached the point where like, I am really appreciative for like all the time I had there. I learned a ton, but I think I kind of like reached the point where I wasn't really learning a lot anymore. I had finished my, my master's degree, uh, which is in data science. Cause I was going to go work in sports. So you did get a master's degree. <laughs> I did. Yeah. Okay. Waste of time. Wouldn't, wouldn't do that again. <laughs> Um, maybe valuable for some people. It also depends like on the circumstance. And I would just say like, for me, if I would have stayed at my old job, it would have been more valuable. It would have like bumped me up on the pay scale and stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, but like where I am now, doesn't matter at all. Right. <laughs> um, but also, you know, means different things to different people, but, and, uh, and like, you know, I, I don't have a degree. I'm totally self-taught, but the way I perceive it is it's like the best education in the world is online. If you're driven enough to get it. Mm -hmm. But the great thing about academia, at least as I perceive it from outside, is that it shows you can stick to something and, and accomplish it. That is one great thing. Like you can get the shit done and then you meet people like you met Goon, right? So yeah. it's like- there and are it's, it's a forcing function too of like, very few people like have the willpower to resist Netflix for yeah. long periods of time. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. And like, you know, it, it can get you. And like, honestly, I would say it's also a lot more valuable if you- didn't go to a super rigorous school or you're changing field slightly. Hmm. Um, so, I mean, I just have the benefit. I was able to go to like a really strong undergraduate program that like really prepared me for a lot of this stuff. And just talking to some of my colleagues, like I was able to, I worked through a lot harder assignments um, and I just covered a lot more ground uh, in my undergrad than, than they did. And so I think some of them got a little bit more out of the masters. Mm -hmm. um, for like the same program. But also I would say that the masters that I did was very much you get out what you put in and I sure. did not put in very much. Sure. Um, so then did you reach out to Ava Labs or did somebody reach out to you? Uh, I reached out to Ava Labs. So I, yeah, so the fast forward two years, I was kind of like, my plan was like, I would like to change jobs within the next three years. You know, I was like, not like looking for like, I have to move now, but um, you know, I, saw that mainnet was coming at mainnet launch was coming up soon and that they were like actually throwing a date on it and i was just like you know i should catch up on this this white paper and so i read the white paper and like my jaw was on the floor mm. um because i was just like oh my god they did it nice <laughs> like all of the problems that bitcoin and ethereum are like struggling with this solves like right by like with an order of magnitude to spare, like, yeah. <laughs> and I was just like, there's no trade-off. There's like, <laughs> like right. I, I, I am like, you know, reasonably educated on distributed systems. Like I don't have a PhD in it. I don't have graduate study in it, but like, as far as like lay people go, sure. Um, you know, I could read the paper and understand its main points. I probably am not the best person to criticize it and point out all of its faults, sure. but um, from, from my, from my understanding, like it seemed pretty legit and I couldn't come up with any like real big flaws or deal breakers. And then, I mean, I just know Goon. He's like one of the smartest people, like I've met in my entire life. 
Yeah, absolutely. 100%. I knew that he would not like, and he's also like the most science research driven person I know of like, we're going to do this the right way. Mm -hmm. We're not going to make, we're not going to make compromises. We're going to figure out what the right thing to do is and do that. Even if it's harder. Yep. And I'm just like, he would not have dropped everything, gone on hiatus from Cornell and started this company if this were not legit. Because he has had opportunities before. Oh, absolutely. And especially with selfish mining. Sure. He could have just did the system. He could have broken Bitcoin and made, you know, millions, billions of dollars. He knew about the DAO hack, dude. He was the guy who called the DAO hack out. Like, yeah, absolutely. He has had opportunities for sure. Yeah. I mean, like to me that I, I agree. So I, I've been for years, I've been saying that I think the next big block, the next big startup, it's a cliche, but I mean like the next Google, the next Apple, the next Twitter, Facebook will emerge from the blockchain space. I've been saying that for eight years and I, there's been several people I thought could be it. And I really do believe Ava Labs has the potential to be that team. We could blow it. We're humans. Nothing's guaranteed. But, uh, and, and Goon is one of the reasons I say it. it. To me, it reminds me of like Eric Schmidt at Google. Like at the very, very top of the food chain, there is just like a fourth dimensional apex predator when it comes to computer <laughs> science. You know what I'm saying? Like Goon yeah, is yeah. the real deal. He created the very first proof of work system in 2003 called Karma. Yeah. So, you know, so anyway, um, yeah, I feel like it's been 45 minutes, man. I want to be respectful of your time. So if you can give me like 15 more minutes, I can talk to you. For oh, I can, I, can, I can keep going. Don't worry. Yeah. I'm, I'm good. All right, cool. So then, yeah, let's talk talk about it so you came to the labs um you became immediately the head of the daps team it was just you in the beginning right yeah yeah it was just me and you built was pangolin your first thing yeah yeah i started pangolin actually before i started working at, at ava labs oh okay i didn't know I was, that <laughs> got it part of my part of my interview <laughs> got it okay so but yeah i actually I, yeah I, I started on it it actually was not pangolin at the time um and then uh it morphed into pangolin later with some outside involvement so but, let me um, let me ask you a so let me ask you a question then um do you how do you feel about how if you created it before you joined other labs presumably you could have just launched it on your own without coming to other labs right so oh, that's what i was gonna do if they didn't hire me <laughs> sure so how do you feel about that so like so like um, the way i look at it man i've said this to you in private text so i know you know how i feel mm-hmm. To me, social equity is worth more than money. Like money is great. We all want money. We all want to have families. We all want to take care of our people. Money is wonderful. But what really matters is social equity because social equity is what people think about you. It's what people say about you when you're not in the room. It's if people trust you. It's if people want to work with you. It's do you have jobs you could work for the rest of your career? What will people say about you after you leave the world, right? That's social equity. And that's just worth more than money. So I told you this when you created Pangolin and I meant it then. Like the social equity that you got from Pangolin is worth a lot. Like you can't put a dollar on it, dude. You're like literally one of the shining stars of the whole Avalanche ecosystem. And so that's why I wonder like, what is your, you said you were going to do it anyway, but were you kind of bummed when you came on board and they were like, we're just going to make this a public thing and we're not giving anybody. No, 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 no. Um, So, I mean, like when I say I was going to do it anyway, I mean, so I would say they, uh, it became kind of part of my interview process. Like it was not something I was working on in my, my spare time, but they were just like, you know, uh, as, as part of my art, the interviewing process was, has, has changed a lot at Ava Labs. And sure. I, I have no idea what your <laughs> interviews were like, but uh, I had one 30, 25 minute conversation with Kevin. Right. And then I had, 
I worked my butt off for like a week on getting getting uh, Uniswap ported over to Avalanche. Uh, a and you're just like, yeah. <laughs> That's pretty impressive. Uh, yeah, well, you know, I didn't know how long they th- expected it to take. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was like under a week i think i like had my interview on like tuesday and i think i finished on like sunday i didn't get much done in my other job that week <laughs> what was it called before penguin uh i was calling it avaswap avaswap okay and then but the domain was taken <laughs> got it and so it's a um is it a straight fork of uniswap or did we change anything about it in any way no, that's really a straight fork. Uh, the tokenomics and uh, the incentives are, and the pooling is different. Gotcha. But, and, um, and, and the actual the, exchange code is just Uniswap. V2. Do, you, do you know of the other AMMs that are live on our network? Are they forks of Penguin or are they also forks of Uniswap? Or is there a mixture? Do you have any idea? <sighs> There's probably, there are probably forks of Penguin at this point because it's easier to fork Penguin than it is to fork Uniswap for Avalanche because I already changed the names sure. <laughs> from right. ETH to Avox and, and stuff like that. Um, I know some people have definitely forked Pangolin. Some people might have forked Uniswap. Some people forked SushiSwap. Um, yeah, the, the governance stuff is different. Like we, we use similar contracts. Uh, I did write some of my own contracts for some of the, the liquidity pool incentivization, mm-hmm. but like the, the incentive schemes are very different uh, in, in Pangolin than, than Uniswap, but the exchange code is basically identical. And what are you like? What are your feelings on Penguin? Penguin is like your baby, man. It's going to be around for a long time. So that's that's one of the things I try and impress mm-hmm. on people because you'll you literally hear people still say is like, is crypto not a fad or you know is DeFi not a fad? <laughs> it's like the famous internet article. Is the internet a fad? You know, it's like just think about how much value mm-hmm. is in these tokens on these networks. That stuff's not just going to go away. People don't just allow you know people care about their wealth, right? There's people out there still holding on to old currency that you can't even spend. You know what I mean? Like people don't just let their value go. And when you think about billions, I'm sure now across our entire network of all of these different tokens, this stuff's going to be around for generations, for many, many years. Like this, <laughs> this stuff's going to be around a long time. What do you think uh, it'd be, about- It'd be cool if Pangolin outlives me, but um, no, I mean, I think it's in a really cool place right now. Yeah. Um, you know, we did try to like transition it over the community because we wanted it to be a community run project. So- mm-hmm. You got a good team, um, great team. Yeah, no, I mean- uh, I, I had a tweet about this a few weeks ago, but like the way to hire in crypto right now, if you want a job in crypto is to like hop on a DAO's discord and like, see like what you can do, like, see, so like true. can I contribute somewhere? Cause that's how like every member of the Penguin team mm-hmm. uh, ended up joining is just, we had so many community volunteers who were like, Hey, I want to help out. Like, and I'm like, these people who are like offering to help out, they're also like launching some of their own crypto projects on the side. They're like, they're like in the space. They know what oh, they're yeah. doing. <laughs> Like I am like way overtaxed. Like I, <laughs> like it, for a long time, it was really only me at Ava Labs working on DApps. Right, um, it was for sure, <laughs> absolutely. And I was like way overbooked yeah. because my bosses would come to me and be like, we need this now. <laughs> now I'd be like, no, 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 you don't understand. Pangolin <laughs> is on fire right now. And they're like, now. <laughs> yeah. And did you, you've worked on some really cool projects. I know not all of them are public, of course. Were you involved in the bridge at all? You must've been at least involved in some way on the bridge. I've provided advice here and there, but not, not really. That, that's, that's other people's pride. That's that, you know, other people deserve, deserve the credit for that. Do you want to give a shout out to any of the team members from the Penguin thing before we move on to the project you and I worked on? Um, yeah, right? no, I mean, I, so I, I guess like, so uh, Harry Selden, Justin Trollope, uh, he's the, 
I don't remember what his official title is now, but he is the, <laughs> the guru leading, leading Penguin right now. I think he's doing a fantastic job. Um, yeah, B Minnow, he's the, uh, the lead dev right now. He's doing a fantastic job. Uh, Leo or best coder NA is leading all the marketing. And I'm like, so impressed with what they've done because I was like, like I said, I was so overtaxed working on Penguin. It was kind of became like, I had so much regular tasking that I didn't get to work on Penguin. And it kind of had to become my like side gig that I was doing like after work <laughs> to, to just keep up with my, like, uh, you know, what needed to be done. And I just couldn't push PRs nearly as fast as I wanted to. Sure. And it's so amazing to see that plot project really blossom to a point where they can actually give it all the support that it needs. Because trust me, like everybody else, I saw all the issues. I saw all the feedback. I knew what needed to be fixed. It was just like having mm -hmm. the time. And also I really suck at React. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> like now, I am not a front end developer at all. <laughs> right. And now Pangolin's got multiple languages, wallet integrations, partnerships. Like it's an actual blowing up project. Yeah, no, I mean that team, they, they, they ship. Like, I mean, I think that's like one of the biggest compliments like you can give to, to a team is like, do you ship or do you not ship? And Absolutely. they ship. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Awesome. And then so recently, um, Connor and I worked on a really cool project. We worked on an NFT marketplace. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, yeah. This is something that I'm, I'm super excited about. Uh, this is going to be the first of, of, of many NFT marketplaces, I think, that are, that are going to come to Avalanche. And I think this is a huge new area of crypto that is entirely underexploited. I think the... NFT space has been very geared towards independent artists mm -hmm. of just like, this is how we're going to fund art. This is how I'm going to sell my house now. This is like, like they're very like niche use cases for individuals, which is a big important field, but leaves out a huge, huge market, which is licensed NFTs. Yep. Um, because every company under the sun is going to every brand under the sun. Like what's the most powerful thing in media right now are these, these brands, these licenses, mm -hmm. you know, uh, NBA top shot is really the only licensed NFT platform out there. There's a little bit on wax. Uh, wax had an MLB program, mm -hmm. but, uh, like there's not, there's not much and there's not much that's super big. So this is a space where, I mean, I imagine probably like, Every major sport is going to want, probably want to play. Every, you know, big Hollywood franchise is probably going to get in eventually. Yeah. Like toys, like it's all, it's all going to come in. Anything that people are willing to buy, like collectibles of, like, I think the licensed market is going to be huge. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So let me give a little backstory. So Connor and I technically are on the same sort of organization at Ava Labs called the Hydra team. We call it the Hydra team because it's like a multi-headed beast because it was kind of like a catch-all team. So there's some DAP stuff. There's the stuff I do, developer services. And so we were interfacing quite regularly through standups and stuff. And I said to him, again, I always say a lot of stuff and I don't know if people take me serious, but I said it like 10 times, like, man, I would love to work on a DAP with you. And the, the opportunity just did not present itself because it's not in my lane. I do developer services. And so the need came out for a web two developer on this project. And so Connor is just a web three wizard. I mean, he gets all the respect for all the NFT architecture, everything. I haven't touched that code, but I got brought in to do the web two stuff. So I've been doing a lot of sort of the traditional rest API stuff and cloud services. And man, it really has been a, like a great time working with you, man. Now we have clocked 
some serious hours. I was going to say, are you sure you want to work again in the future? <laughs> yeah. Because I'm was, not sure you want to. Yeah, I was just saying, like, I literally have not, I, I have not put in, like, this kind of effort since 2012, since we took truly a public uh, on the on the New York Stock Exchange. So, like, we've been throwing down some hours, but it's been incredibly rewarding. And most importantly, man, I'm just glad to meet you because I really do think you're a block star. I think you're a young man and that your best days are ahead of you. And it's going to be really cool to see, like, I always say once you're lucky, twice you're good. And I think you've already been good. <laughs> you've already had <laughs> two projects. It's going to be interesting to see ultimately where you go. So. Oh, thank you, man. That's, I really, really appreciate that. And I, I the, the respect is totally mutual here. I think all the same things about you. I like it. I have been so impressed with you since uh, since day one. Like seriously, one of the hardest workers I, I've ever met. And man, th this guy ships Avalanche JS updates. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Yeah, so uh, the NFT marketplace is big, like he said, without even going any farther. There is an absolutely huge potential for, you know, um, sort of not Web3 centric stuff, a marrying of the Web2 and the Web3 space. So recently, um, the Bazooka Joe marketplace went live, and that was just a really good melding of Web2 and Web3. As you use this technology, you don't use MetaMask at all. You don't even really use crypto. You're using credit card and sort of fiat payment rails. But under the scenes, you know, there's blockchain technology happening. And that seems like a very natural way forward when we're on ramping the entire world. It's also giving us a lot of insight into traditional payment rails and how much crypto is just like orders of magnitude better and the problems yeah. it solves. Connor can speak to this a thousand times better than <laughs> myself because he's falling down that rabbit hole, but it's just crazy. When you actually start pulling at the threads of the traditional finance rails, it's pretty freaking crazy. It's like a Rube Goldberg machine. That's what's powering our whole financial system. It's absolutely No, insane. seriously, I, I built the blockchain infrastructure in a week uh, you know, I, I, the actual like contracts and pathways were like very quick. Uh, the, we are building out some infrastructure for kind of doing like managed web three work that took mm -hmm. a while, but honestly, the hardest part of this entire project has been, been integrating credit cards mm -hmm. and, uh, trying to do different kind of payment schemes. So you can like pay with balance versus pay with credit card or, um, you know, try to do like wire transfers or things like that. And, yeah. and I'll say, so when we say we're, you know, right now these websites are only available to pay with credit cards. Like we very much been trying to ship minimum viable product and we're going to be improving it in the future. There will be crypto rails as well to pay with crypto and, and all this stuff. We don't believe in just uh, front loading your crypto with credit cards and like never showing it to you. Mm -hmm. We do believe in like non-custodial solutions and that's something that we want to provide. But I think this is actually uh, another thing that I'm super hot on, which I think this is like, a really great innovation in the space that like we should carry forward is the hybrid web two, web three interface. Yeah. Because I think how can we get more people in crypto? Like, I think the problem with crypto and onboarding new users is you can't go straight to adapt. You have to go to an exchange first. You've got to do the KYC. You've got to wait minutes to days before they verify you. Then you've got to wait for your money to clear to then withdraw your money. Uh, to your own wallet, which you have to learn how to use MetaMask. You have to, or ideally you learn how to use a ledger, uh, which you then have to like buy from Amazon. And there's like 10 steps you have to go through to use your first app. Yeah. And if you haven't lost interest by the end, like you're a devotee, like already, like <laughs> yeah. you're, you, you've got a very long attention span. Like I want to, like we, you need, we need to create more pathways for people to just be like, Oh my God, this NFT is so awesome. I've never bought an NFT before. I want to buy it. And 10 seconds later, they have it. Mm -hmm. Like that's, that's what you need to get new users. Like 
I, you know, you need people to be like, this is something I want to try. And then just like be like one, a couple clicks away from doing it. Yeah. And I think that's an area where, you know, you know, working on these on-ramps is just something that we're going to have to do for a while. Like you, we won't have to do it forever. Like I think mobile is a really great comparison here of like, you know, when phone apps were new and like mobile as a platform was new, you had to think about like onboarding people to the mobile experience and like learning how to use their phones. Cause mm -hmm. they, you know, there was an onboarding process that you actually had to worry about as a developer. Whereas now mobile is so ubiquitous. Like you don't worry, like, does this person like know how to use Sure. iPhone apps are they familiar with these paradigms? Because we just assume like everybody is because it's so ubiquitous. And I think crypto analogy. will reach a point. We'll reach that point eventually when when everybody has has a wallet. Um, sure. I think I think also like the ability to have like crypto bank accounts. I think will be important in the future too. That like allow you to move, like more custodial solutions. I think are also just important for the future. Just sure. Because most people. Yeah. And as more people are digitally native, right? Like my son, who's totally digitally native and has been into cryptos for as long as he's known, right? Like it's going to be incredibly natural to them. So it'd also yeah. just be of people just filtering out of the systems and more crypto natives coming in. Um, it makes me think of a couple of things came to mind. You said um, crypto bank accounts. I want to give a shout out to Caitlin Long and the crew from Wyoming. The work that's going on in Wyoming is absolutely critical to that. And then also on the flip side, back to the NFT marketplace, before we wrap it up, I want to give a shout out to like the biz dev team and the marketing team at Ava Labs. I really think that Ava Labs is special in the fact that we have this amazing technology that we're getting to work with, but it's really not enough. So like the, the stuff we're talking about right now, being able to on-ramp these big brands into this stuff, that's not something the engineers do. That's something that biz dev <laughs> people do. And I just have a ton of respect for these people and the, the work that they put in and the deals they pull off. Massive respect there. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a cool thing about crypto is it's a, it's a space for everyone because mm -hmm. like if you're, when you're trying to onboard users, sometimes you need suits, yep. sometimes you need Silicon casual yep. people like uh, you and myself. <laughs> right. So then um, what do you think are the biggest wins we've had at Avalab so far or Avalanche? I don't, we have to be Avalab. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Avalanche. What are some of the biggest wins we've had? Uh, I think, um, Honestly, the launch of Pangolin, I think, was a really big win for us because I would say, you know, not to brag, but I mean, just that was <laughs> like the first moment where Avalanche became something real. It was a milestone. I said it at the time, it was a huge milestone. We'll look back in 10 years and Pangolin will be a milestone. It was the first DAP that went live that showed we have sub-second immutable irreversible finality with EVM DAPs. Boom. And there it is. Yeah, I think... Um, yeah, if you look at the traffic on Avalanche, like the first few months after mainnet, it's like nothing, 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 boom. Mm -hmm. And that's like right when Penguin launched. So I think that was a huge milestone, just like actually having a real dApp on the system and, you know, bringing in real users, real traffic. If you look at the, um, the liquidity curve on Penguin, it's like exponential growth those first few days and mm -hmm. like we hit hundreds of millions of dollars like almost right away and it was super flattering and impressive mm -hmm. and uh i think just all the user feedback that we got of the on-ramping sucks but like once you get in this is awesome <laughs> right yeah and then um yeah. how about like what do you think are some of the any other upsides anything else come to mind yeah yeah, yeah. there's there's definitely some some other stuff that i, that I want to shout out um, I think 
<laughs> I know I have a lot of Penguin ones. Penguin transitioning over to the community team. Yeah. I think that is a, a huge milestone of actually having a DAO work in practice. Yeah, I was going to ask that. How, does, how is the governance? What's what's the governance look like now on Pangolin? And it's it's live, right? Oh yeah, oh yeah, it's been live for a long time. So we uh, we had some community members who, um, you know, I was reaching out to, and I was like, hey, you should run for for office or whatever to to like run Pangolin. And so, you know, I was I was chatting with a group of guys and had them, you know, we had a few people who were like the most committed members of the community team who are interested in stepping up to the task. Mm -hmm. And so they put together a proposal to um, take money from the community treasury to pay salaries for themselves and have a, have a, have a multi-sig treasury that could be used to, to fund a Dow company basically. Mm -hmm. um, and they were successful. We were, they were able to get uh, the million PNG required to, to do that. And so they cool, man. came so out with the whole cool. plan of like, we're going to be paid in PNG. You know, this is how much we're going to make. We're going to do all this stuff. These are our immediate like roadmap plans. They're very transparent mm -hmm. and they've taken it over and they're like basically bootstrapped uh, a startup on top of a multi-million dollar DEX, which is like multi-hundred million dollar DEX. And they're not all engineers. Is that correct? No, they're not. Right. Uh, so I just so, wanted to highlight that just so I could say like to highlight what he said earlier, if you want to get involved in a, in a crypto project, go to a, uh, like a DAO, especially go to their discord, go to their GitHub, find some way that you can plug in to start adding value. The opportunity is so wide open and it's not just engineers, it's anybody, project managers, business people, marketing people, like every single team out there in the crypto world right now is just like starving for competent, quality, hardworking, trustworthy people. And there's and also, so much you, opportunity. Yeah. If you just want to do some work on the side, they have like tons of bounty programs for things that are not even all engineering related. Sometimes it's like, we want a translation into the Turkish right. uh, of our docs. So we're like, hey, I speak, you know, you, I speak Turkish or whatever. I'll just go translate them. And then like, oh, bam, you get a couple hundred PNG or something like that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, they, you know, we, they definitely outsource a lot of tasks like that. And it, it really is, it spans the full gamut. Everyone on the team was hired that way. Not just, not just engineers, also marketing, also community members, a lot of stuff like that. So whatever your specialty is, if you're an accountant, if you're a lawyer, honestly, they probably need both of those. <laughs> and it's a straightforward with regards to governance. It's just a proposal vote mechanism. Is that it? Yeah. So they've been switching it up a little bit. So they have a multi-sig on the treasury. They have uh, on-chain governance. They also have off-chain governance via snapshot that the multi-sig uh, holders like swear to abide by. Sure. Um, and they have some different processes. So some of the stuff that was governed by the on-chain governance, they've also kind of like moved to a procedural stuff because they were just having to do too many proposals. Sure. And so for like, Pangolin has the ability to incentivize certain pairs. And so they've kind of taken an approach similar to some other DEXs where instead of just incentivizing a few big pairs, they're going to incentivize a lot of pairs. Mm -hmm. And so because they were incentivizing so many pairs, they could only do like 10 at a time or whatever. And you don't necessarily do that. And like new tokens are coming online every week. So they switch to like, if you meet these requirements, if you have like 5,000 transactions, if you have, you know, blah, 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 we'll just automatically add you as a pair. Got it. And then, um, how about other than Pangolin? What are some other... Yep projects that jump out in your mind um i'm really excited for benki finance that hasn't launched yet but that's um that's going to be a lending platform that's been one of the big 
building blocks. It's is that flash us. loans or is that? What, it does have flash loans. I believe okay. it will have flash loans. Uh, so that's that's a really big one that's coming very soon. We just like today and finished our Chainlink implementation. Uh, so that's Chainlink big. is now live on Avalanche, and that was the big blocker on lending. We you need price feeds to to do lending platforms. And explain it to me again, like I'm five. You've done it before and you did a great job. Flash loans. Like it's it's what what is the heart and soul of flash loans? Flash loans are what's known as uncollateralized loans. So basically you can borrow unlimited money as up to as much as money as is in the lending platform's treasury uh, without putting anything down as collateral. The reason you can do this, this is something you can't do in the real world. This is just a crypto thing. The reason you can do this is because the loan is only valid if it is paid back within one Ethereum block or within the, within the same transaction. Okay. So that means you can actually borrow this money basically risk-free. So you have to borrow it and pay it back in the same transaction because Ethereum transactions follow a, or EVM transactions follow a commit revert pattern. Okay. So you have to, if you can borrow the money, do your arbitrage opportunity or whatever you want to do with it, and then pay the money back, your transaction succeeds. But if you made a mistake and you actually can't pay it back, you like lost money, the transaction will revert. And the only thing you will have paid is the lost gas for the transaction fee. Got it. And then like, so this is like me walking into the bank and saying, I wanna borrow all the money in the bank with no collateral basically. Yeah, I can borrow a billion dollars for one second. That's pretty radical. Um, and so this, what's cool about this is it really lowers the, the barrier to entry for people who want to take advantage of things like arbitrage opportunities or, or, or whatever that would previously only be available to people with large amounts of money. Sure. Because let's say you notice an opportunity on Pangolin where the price is like distorted and you can like earn money by buying up a lot of, a lot of one token and then shifting the price back to the equilibrium point. Um, it might take a few million dollars to, to, to buy enough to take full advantage of it. And I, you know, I don't know about you. I don't have a few million dollars sitting mm -hmm. around to like just slosh around in DeFi protocols. Right. Uh, especially if you get up into like the tens of millions, you know, like, cause like Uniswap B3, for instance, like if you want to take advantage of the arbitrage, you actually need like tens of millions sometimes cause it's very capital efficient. Mm -hmm. So you need a flash, like if you're, if you're just a lay person, you can get a flash loan and still take advantage of this opportunity that previously would only have been locked off to institutional investors. So this um, is, flash loans are very powerful. They can actually do a lot of bad things because uh, if you can, it, it, sometimes they're helpful for letting people break protocols because sure. you can do some price manipulation and things like that. Mm -hmm. But they, I, I do really like them because I think they democratize a whole new part of the ecosystem that mm -hmm. lets people who are clever, uh, you know, reap the benefits of, of, uh, of their work rather than necessarily the people who are like already rich. Sure. I mean, it's, it's the great promise of DeFi, right? So in the same way that the web democratized information and made the totality of all human knowledge ubiquitous at a button click, DeFi really does democratize asset or wealth and so you can imagine you know like he just said something that was previously limited to an institutional investor now a 13 year old young lady in india can do like it's just an absolute leveler of the playing field and it lowers the barrier to entry it's absolutely crazy um yeah that's pretty exciting so when does that go live 
So Chainlink went live today. That was the big blocker. So yeah, they're probably going to chess with uh, Chainlink. Also huge. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm not I'm not hooked into the Benki team. I don't really know, but just I imagine pretty soon. Got it. Okay. Yeah, that's pretty exciting. Anything else? Yeah. I mean, I would definitely say um, just one one with a very amorphous milestone. I would say when I started working on the Tops project a few months ago, mm-hmm. um, I knew almost every DAP on Avalanche. Uh, like I was like very in tune with the ecosystem sure. and I could tell you like there is PandaSwap, there is Pangolin, there is uh, Zero, there is like I could like list off like every dApp that was on the platform. Then there's like a few coming. There's like Sherpa Cash, mm-hmm. there, there, there's all these. Now I have no clue. Like in just the last like two months, like just the number of projects that have actually launched it launched has gone just like through the roof and I'm out of touch now. I like, I'm like so far behind the curve of just like what's running on Avalanche now. (laughs) And we're about to have dynamic fees, right? So things are even about to change in like a whole other way. Yeah, that's that's amazing. Um, So I I think, you know, I've heard, you know, let's say just throw a number out there. Let's say there's 250 apps live on the mainnet right now. I don't know, give or take 50 probably at least that many in the progress of being made. Just a guesstimate, 12 months from now, how many dApps will be live on Avalanche? I think the number I heard tossed around recently was 70. I heard um, 70 as well, but then I saw a chart where they said 225. So let's go with 100 then. Let's just know. say let's say there's 100. That's still an amazing number. Um, what do yeah. you think in a year? How many dApps are on Avalanche? Oh. There's 100 now. Just a guess. 1,000 or more? Yeah, I, I would say a 10x. I think we can 10x in a year. Yeah, I do too. I think that's on the lower bound. My opinion is that there could be thousands, but every time I say that, people roll their eyes. But you know, I say it a thousand times a day, so I'm going to say it again now because I'm a broken record. The pace of change is accelerating so radically that we're going to experience a hundred years worth of progress in ten years. So to say that we could have you know fifteen hundred DApps on live next year, sure, man. Especially if inflation keeps going the way it is all around the world and people keep getting driven. Yeah. The truth. The truth is, there's a lot of DApps that are derivative. Sure, uh, which helps yeah. people build fast. So, yeah. like, but like, I don't see any shame to that game. I don't see any shame. Oh, to that game. no, no shame to this game. In fact, it actually yeah. helps us in a lot of ways. Right. Um. But like, it's the kind of thing of like you don't have to build everything from scratch. Yep. As I guess what I was going to say is that like, Penguin was the first Dex to launch an Avalanche. Penguin was not an original idea. Penguin was Uniswap. Like, I I take no credit for that. Um. But then that, that's the same thing spawned 10 other DEXs. Sure. There's a lot of apps on Ethereum that have not been cloned over to Avalanche yet. And there is ample <laughs> opportunity for somebody who just wants to go on over fork Ethereum projects and bring them over to Avalanche. There's also people building on Binance. There's also people building on you know, other chains mm-hmm. that are using the EVM that we yep. can like, you know, people can take those projects and bring them here. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and then people can then also take them here, tweak them slightly, and then make a second copy. That mm-hmm. happens a lot. And that really increases the, the rate of inflation. And that's actually like a good thing. I think like, um, I, I, I don't believe that, I, I think there is definitely some cash grab and I'm not a super fan of that, but I think there's also people who make a lot of substantive changes sure. that are small. And like, this is like, like sushi swap and unit swap, for example, um, Uniswap, I think they really don't like SushiSwap because they kind of like stole their DEX contract. I mean, they forked their open source right. uh, contracts, but then 
Uh, Uniswap, I mean, SushiSwap actually did have a really great innovation with its yield farming and the way that it did its tokenomics mm -hmm. that uh, honestly, like Uni's tokenomics are like not great. They're like very centralized. They also have like given out like most of their supply. And so they don't like, um, they don't have the ability to just keep giving out lots of tokens to their- They don't have a lot of gunpowder. Yeah, yeah. So most of them are like accounted for. Got it. Whereas like SushiSwap has no minting limit. They, they just like inflate infinitely. Um, but because of that, they're able to give out rewards for a lot of things and they're able to fine tune how rewards are distributed. And they actually do a really great job of like, letting you use your rewards to earn other rewards by like staking your reward tokens. And there's Absolutely. just like everything about that platform is a rewards mechanism. It has one attached to it. And I think that is a huge innovation mm -hmm. in, in the space. So even though it's using the same like automated market maker, uh, constant, constant multiplier market maker kind of thing, it's still like really pushing the, the ecosystem forward and like it totally like one of the key, you know, building blocks in, in yield farming and, mm -hmm super interesting so like i mean there's no shame in forking a project and trying to improve it even if the improvement is tangential like i mean i would say like pangolin does do things differently than uniswap differently than sushi swap right. different than pancake swap um plus especially now with the team going forward yeah plus we are about to have subnets and that's going to introduce a whole new paradigm yeah right? so it's like something a new evm type thing could launch and all of a sudden we could just see a whole new explosion of non-defi oh, apps and yeah. like also we're gonna get like the big bitcoins coming over eventually like yeah. we, i know we've publicly talked about yeah. uh we, we were working with some external people i believe to bring mm -hmm. the bitcoin and bitcoin cash vms over so yeah. any app that's been written for bitcoin or bitcoin cash mm -hmm. their their scripting languages those are now can be run and ported over to avalanche yeah i was the so, one i'm the one running that project for what it's worth and yeah. it's just on hold until the subnets are permissionless right now subnets are permissioned but now that we have vms we are literally i just had a meeting with our vp of engineering about it last week we're just waiting on permissionless subnets and then yeah we're going to have a bitcoin and a bitcoin cash virtual machine and a subnet so there will be like the ethereum subnet which is like an ethereum spoon where you just fork ethereum into a subnet and drop the state we're going to do the same thing with bitcoin and bitcoin cash we're calling them initial subnet offerings so that's something we have discussed publicly and is definitely in the works as well yeah and i think the the ability i think it'll be really interesting to see what the next chain we bring over is because there's a bunch of other chains that have built their own like proprietary or not necessarily proprietary but they've built their own virtual machine implementation mm -hmm. for smart contracts they're not using the evm they're not using bitcoin like you know Card cardano or whatever um, yeah, I know Z. I know uh, Tyler T Crypt, who's an absolutely wizard from our team as well, talks a lot about Mina and Cairo, which are like these succinctly verifiable, recursively snarked uh, VMs. That's mm -hmm. something. There could also be Wasm. Like, there's a lot of different things that could be coming into the ecosystem that are going to be catalysts in addition to the EVM. So that's what, again, why I say a thousand DApps next year. I think that's completely reasonable just on the EVM. When you start sprinkling in other VMs thousands is what i've been saying and everybody was always like yeah right and i'm like let's talk in a year man things are going so fast that, yeah i know i think the work working on the evm is the short game right now and subnets are the long game yeah absolutely okay cool what do you think are i have a couple more questions and now yeah we're kinda, sure yeah we're kind of a little bit more vague so um what are some some of our big mistakes what are some of the things we've not or not mistakes but what are we just talked about the upsides what are some of the downsides so far of the journey Personally or for Ava Labs? Whatever. But yeah, whatever. Whatever comes to your mind, really. 
So mm-hmm. whatever, whatever you thought, whatever you want to share. I think, uh, what won't get me fired? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think you would have to do something really stupid to get fired, man. I think you're a pretty valuable asset. I think, I think one of the places that we struggled was I think we had too much emphasis on the X chain at first. Yep. With all the exchanges, um, we did exchange integrations primarily with X-Chain. And that was like, you have to cross-chain yeah. swap to get... Yeah, that was awkward. And I totally understand why. I mean, Avalanche sure. Consensus works best for um, for, for DAG-based blockchains. And, and we like, issued we issued our token on the X-Chain, right? So it only makes yeah, sense yeah. that's where it was, right? And mm-hmm. I think what just we didn't anticipate as a company was just the explosion in like DeFi and the explosion of apps and... Mm-hmm. That people weren't looking for a payment. So people in 2020, sure. last year, 2021, mm-hmm. are not looking for payments. I agree. Like they're looking for dApps. They're yeah. looking for smart contracts. They're looking for yields. Absolutely. Like that's absolutely that's yeah. that's where the money is right now. Mm-hmm. And I think we were slow to recognize that. Um, and we have since pivoted. Like now, like C Chain is our like. Focus one A, I think, absolutely on the platform side of trying to um, uh, trying 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 to improve going forward because we do have to make some changes because Avalanche consensus like we we've been shipping minimum viable products like nothing I think that we have shipped has been super polished just as mm-hmm. a company like I mean it's like very very high quality software but mm-hmm. you know we have the minimum amount of features we need to go to market and we like polish things later and so I think the C chain just has needed like more polish. And um, uh, so there's, there's still like some work to be done to make sure that it is like as performant and as secure and as scalable as possible. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, we've done a really good job of like prioritizing that, but um, you know, we, uh, we still have some room to go before we're truly the best in the world by an order of magnitude or two, but we're sure. going to get there. Like we yeah. have the plans to get there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, so I think, I think that was probably like the biggest mistake um, that we just kind of made. Um, but I think, I think we're moving in a, in a good direction now. But like I said, I think the, the C chain is the short game subnet yeah. to the long game. And we're definitely still working on the long game right now. I agree. Um, okay. Um, I mean, I think, uh, I think just some of the other things that we've struggled with are some of the communications around uh and and some of the marketing i think has been harder on people i think that's one community complaint that i think is very they're very um reasonable is that we haven't done as much advertising to like push avalanche and and some of these other things but i think it's it's a good move but i understand some of the frustration there right uh because it it sucks when you feel like you have the best technology in the world that nobody knows about you sure and that People are still talking about people who haven't delivered anything, but they don't know who we are. Right. So I think that's one thing that I think is going to be changed, fixed in the in the in the future is going to be like making sure that everybody in the world knows yeah. knows Avalanche and that we're a very clear marketing team, very transparent, and not uh, not an, an anonymous entity that's like very secretive or anything like that. Sure. And I know the team has been growing and leaps and bounds with amazing people to solve that exact problem. So yeah, I'm sure of that. Um, okay. So zooming out a little bit, what do you think are um, same sort of tone of question? First part, what do you think is like the best part about crypto idealism, mm-hmm. you know, just, and then what do you think is like the downside? 
yeah, I mean, I think the best part about crypto is that we kind of get to start over. There's like, there's no legacy software. This is like the thing of like, you go into a company and you want to make some great, great software to work, work with this company or whatever. But it turns out that their whole backend is built in COBOL. <laughs> and like, if you want to interface with them, you've got to like deal with all this. Mm-hmm. But now is this chance to like reset, start over. Like this is the same thing, not just with software, with like any system of like, we want to make a new law. Well, if we want to pass new law, we have to take into consideration all the laws that have come before, all the processes for making a law that have come before. There's all these systemic forces that are in place to, to push things into a box. Right. And crypto's like a place to build outside that box where mm-hmm. these systems aren't in place. Like nobody who's like actually like an institutional force is in crypto right now. Like there's nobody who's saying like, this is the way it has to be built. It has to integrate with this old thing. Like the Mm -hmm. whole ethos of crypto is just, we're throwing everything out. We're starting new. Like we can actually build these new systems from scratch. We can take everything we've learned from that, from, you know, hundreds of years of us history and, uh, you know, uh, you know, thousands of years of human history Mm -hmm. to make more fair systems for, for everyone. Cause I think, the best part about crypto, I don't, I, I don't think it's the great equalizer. I think, I think this is something that some people get caught up with. I, I think, I, I don't think crypto is necessarily going to be this uh, equity-driven force that's necessarily going to, or like redist- a redistributive force. I mean, I think some people are going to get rich that were not rich before. I think some people who are already rich are going to get way richer. Um, I don't think it's necessarily going to be super redistributive. I think that's, uh, but I, what I do think is that it's going to make the systems more fair for everyone, because I think there's so much institutional, so many institutional problems with the old financial system of things that are designed to help you that are actually designed to keep you poor. <laughs> sure. Um, especially like there's so much like when people talk about like uh, crypto, crypto has some problems, but I think we need to think about it more like we think about self-driving cars mm-hmm. um, in that like everyone like likes to hyper analyze the one time a self-driving car gets into an accident mm-hmm. and they don't really think about like all of the accidents that didn't happen because the self-driving car uh, you know, even though it has like less accidents overall, just the, the one accident is like the super, super blown up one. I think crypto is kind of the same way of like, you're like, well, somebody committed a crime with Bitcoin once, you know, sure. and just like, yes, like that happened, but people commit crimes with cash all the, all the time. Mm-hmm. And like the majority of dollar bills are like in denominations of like a hundred dollars or, or greater, I think like <laughs> sure. because of like the cartels and like how they, how they pay their stuff because there's so much money wrapped up in it. Like, like the majority of cash and like, I've, I've never deal in bills that large. Um, mm-hmm. But I mean, I just think there's like so much like discrimination in the financial system uh, that it's like targeted to like hurt minorities. There's so much stuff that's trying to protect uh, Wall Street and institutional investors yeah. get, they just get bailed out whenever they make a mistake and then everybody else pays the price. Sure. And I think that um, while crypto won't level the playing field for everyone economically, I think it's going to make it fair and more transparent in a way that, you know, 
I think most people would recognize that, you know, not everybody's going to have the same outcome, but I think people would like to play by the same rules. Sure. And I yeah. think that is an opportunity that is, you know, really powerful. Absolutely. The biggest risk I think is that we create an environment that is totally allows people to escape in a negative way. Um, like I think escape that, taxes or frontierism. Yeah. What do you, okay. Gotcha. Yeah. No, I think that, you know, we do have some power as a society to do things that are like redistributive. Like, you know, we could tax the rich or, or, or things like that if we, if we wanted to. And, you know, because of like wealth distribution, kind of like if you wanted to, if you wanted to do something like that, um, you know, you, we actually have some power, you know, like the government, we, you know, we, the people as like the government or whatever have, have the power to, um, you know, enforce taxes and like have, have, have people, you know, compel people to do things without violence. Right. Um, and I think the, the one, the, the one biggest risk of crypto would be that we create a way for people to totally escape any kind of like financial oversight. Sure. And, you know, we already have like billionaires who don't pay any taxes right. who, you know, do we just get into a system where like all of their money is untouchable and, you know, they don't really partake in society anymore and don't do the things they do that, that help out the rest of us downstream. Sure. Uh, I think, I think that's probably the biggest risk is that we kind of just create the ability to totally escape, um, which I don't, I don't think is super desirable. I think sure. there needs to be a balance. I think people need to, you know, as much as I hate paying taxes, like, I mean, I think taxes are, are a useful concept and I wish they were more efficient. And uh, yeah, Tyler recently yeah. said, Tyler said, I'd like, uh, he's tweeted or something, paying taxes yeah. in a ZK snark and distributing with a Dow. That's, that's the future I want to yeah. see. <laughs> I mean, Got it's hard it. also, cause I think, you know, it, it's a tough, it's, it's, it's a tough problem. You can't really simplify it because like, Everybody wants to pay for the sexy stuff. Nobody wants to pay for the boring stuff. Sure, and, you know, you got to, you got to, you got to do the boring stuff too, unfortunately. Absolutely. But, yeah. uh, you know, I think you, you just have to strike a balance between giving people like total financial freedom to do whatever they want, but also, you know, making sure that everybody does contribute to society in a way that is helpful and kind of like hopefully most optimal. Sure. Okay. All right, man. Well, I have one one last sort of topic and we can wrap it up. I think we can. Uh, I want to go way back to the beginning. I want to go to where it all started. I want to know sort of what are your thoughts on Satoshi? Like, was it one person? Was it a group? Uh, what motivated Satoshi? Uh, is Satoshi still alive? Um, just what are your thoughts on Satoshi? Just, just brain, brain dump on Satoshi. I think it was probably a person like I don't buy into the, like it was the Chinese government kind of like mm -hmm. conspiracy theory. Um, I'm not super schooled on this. Um, I like I, I don't know. I know there's like a lot of people who have like the actual history of like, oh, he was on this chat board, chat room at this time or whatever. And like he tended to write during these time zones and, and whatnot. So I, I, I've never been super interested in the debate. I think it was probably one person. I think they're probably dead. If I'm being you think honest, so? yeah, yeah, I think my my I suspect it was either 
uh, I think it was probably my intuition was that it was actually a group. The reason I say that is because, yeah, there were bugs in Bitcoin. Like there was a minting bug in Bitcoin. It wasn't bulletproof, but man, it was really high quality to be like an iteration one or 1.1 or something of a technology mm -hmm. stack. And there's so many threads, right? It's like economics and computer science and networking and security. And there's just so many threads that, yeah, there could have been one person who knew all those things. It's possible. There, there are giants out there. Um, but usually when something like that is released, that's so bulletproof, I mean, not perfect, of course, but it's usually like peer reviewed. And the fact that nobody has ever came forward to me suggests there's like some ironclad NDAs in place that are preventing people from being able to ultimately come out. What I think, though, is I suspect that if you could pinpoint it on one person, it's Hal Finney, right? Hal Finney was employee number two at PGP. Um, he ran Bitcoin, you know, running Bitcoin, the very first dude who ever tweeted about it. He got the first transaction from Satoshi. Um, his neighbor was Dorian Satoshi Nakamoto, that guy that Newsweek yeah, pointed, yeah. you know, like where there's smoke, there's usually fire. And it seems to me like if I had to say anybody, Hal Finney is probably a good guess. That's my opinion. Yeah. I don't know. It's just like hard to believe that they wouldn't touch the fortune. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, that's, that's why I think that they're dead or just they, like, they would have to like care about money so little. Mm -hmm. Or unless they went on to something else, so that'd be another reason, right? That they've just created some other coin. I'm just brainstorming. True, true, now. yeah. And yeah, they like, went, they found it, they found it Stripe or something like that. Like, yeah, oh, you know. <laughs> right, and they're like, I don't want to touch it because I'll destroy Bitcoin or whatever, and it's not worth yeah, it. I'm yeah. already worth a billion dollars. So that'd be another one. Is if they're just so good that they just moved on. But yeah, I agree with you. It's suspicious that nothing has ever been touched. That's like some discipline that is not. Yeah, human. I mean, they clearly, they clearly, I don't think they'll ever come forward at this point. Right. Uh, cause I mean, if, if anyone wanted to, like if the real Satoshi wanted to come forward, they could prove it super easily. Absolutely. Uh, so anybody that claims they are without doing that is full of shit. Yeah. Yeah. I just was saying that the other day with extra, with extraordinary claims requires extraordinary evidence and nobody's met the evidence. So the claims are. Well, wrong. the extraordinary evidence is like, it's easy. It's not like hard. Right. <laughs> like, True. <laughs> but nobody's done it. Right. Yeah. At least not in public. Turns out he just lost his private key. That was, <laughs> he <laughs> yeah. threw away the computer. He's trying to they go didn't get, have ledgers back then. He's trying to go get the city dump to let him dig it up with AI right now. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> awesome, man. Well, it was really nice talking to you, dude. That was a great convo. Thank you for giving me insight into your, uh, your journey and your vision. And absolutely. We're going to be doing this on the regular and I'm going to try and bring in so many different people. So I extend the uh, invitation. If you want to do it on the regular, man, let me know. I'll definitely have you back anytime. Yeah, no, this was, this was super fun. I love, love doing this kind of thing. And you're, you are the, the best host in the business here. <laughs> Thank you. Awesome, man. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you for staying up late. Go enjoy your time. And um, thank you. All right, man. Take care. See you tomorrow. <laughs> All right, man. Cheers. Bye.